1: Wanted nothing more than simply to recreate the imagined past world in all its medieval glory. He tried to do it in the Confederate Army. He tried to do it in Mexico after the Civil War. He tried to do it as a confidant of the James Gang. He tried to do it as a soldier, a writer, a newspaper, a journalist, author. Did not succeed. But we remember him today in the words of Matthew Christopher Hulbert, author of Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards, and his never-ending Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil
1: War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, looking out on the beautiful courtyard that has uh, been refurbished over the last seven or eight months, so now it finally looks nice, Uh, but not representing or speaking for the contractors who worked on the courtyard, or the administrators at ECU who hired them, or anybody for that matter, just myself, and likewise, our guest will speak only for himself tonight, as always, Uh, never Never want to make the mistake of forgetting the legal disclaimer at the start of the show, just in case someone from the university is actually listening. Well, I am happy to be here tonight. It is uh, a new semester. It's January of 2024. I'm enjoying the comfort of, of beautifully cushioned earphones, uh, thanks to Frank Uh Frank is not actually literally massaging my ears at this moment, but is the name of the set of earphones purchased with funds contributed from uh, a longtime listener named Frank, who's generously supported the show. Uh, I'm also beaming in the aftermath of the Detroit Lions uh, football victory last week over Tampa Bay. The... Uh, uh, the Lions were my original sports love many many years ago, and uh, remained so. Uh, uh, remained dormant f- for many years. Uh, and I'm just going to pause, make sure the the phone at the other end is holding steady. Hearing a little little interference there. We'll move. Keep going. Uh, yeah. So I I have I have supported the lions from the days of charlie sanders to barry sanders uh through eddie murray and so on i really don't know how to act now that the lions are doing well it, it my entire lifetime that has never happened uh and yet here they are uh, so in other things that have never happened uh, we have never uh Failed to inform you who's going to be next on the show, and you can find out that by going to impedimentsofwar.org, the website. Mark Gaffney is in charge there, and you will see he has printed the names of the people coming up next week. Jonathan D. Sarna, co-editor of Jews and the Civil War, a reader, among many other works, Uh Followed by February 2024, Fergus Bordowicz returns to the show. His new book is about U.S. Grant and the battle to save Reconstruction. It's called *Clan War. We'll have Harold Holzer. i owe Harold an email. Harold, I'll get that to you shortly. Uh, his brand new book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration, will be our topic. We'll talk with Scott Hippensteel on the 21st of February about... Sand, Science, and the Civil War, sediment. I'm going to get that right one day, sedimentary, I am a sedimentary person these days, um, sedimentary, geology, geology and combat, we'll find out the connections when he gets here, and we'll wrap up the month of February 2024 with Cecilia Zander, uh, her book, not even published yet, but it'll be out soon, The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. So last week I shared a quote with you from uh, listener Rick Mason about why it's a clever thing to contribute $25 to the book and bourbon fund here at Civil War Talk Radio. Not because you get a tax refund. Because you don't. It's, It's not a 501c3. This week, instead of a clever quote, let me sweeten the pot with the offer of a book, a copy of my book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves?, and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. I'm holding here a first edition hardbound copy of it, which I found when I was at David's bookstore earlier uh, this month. Uh, Could not immediately resist buying it. My first thought was, well... uh, Uh, Well, well, I bought it, of course, and then inside it I found it was an autographed copy uh, inscribed by the author, which would be me, to a local couple, not anyone I knew, so I'm guessing it may have dated back to when the book was published, they came to a book signing, and I was going to make up an elaborate story about how the book found its way to a used bookstore, but... It occurred to me there are, there are reasons why people no longer have their books, and they're not all happy stories, and I, I don't want to risk uh, uh, raising any painful feelings for anyone. So I'll just say, uh, I've got the book now, but I've got another copy of it. I'll send you this one uh, to the next donor, let's say $30, that's 25 plus postage. Um If you don't have a copy, send uh, the next contributor $30 who wants a copy, will get this. And as a bonus, I will cross out the previous owner's name and sign it to you, or I will have, uh, yeah, I can do that. Or I can just leave it that way, and you can pretend you know these folks and that they gave you the book Uh, any way you want to do it. Well, tonight we are talking about... John Newman Edwards, who, as I said the last time I introduced the book uh, on the previous show, uh, somebody I'd never heard of until reading this book. And now the week is gone. I've read the book. I've heard of him, and you will too. Full title, Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards and His Never-Ending Civil War. The author is Matthew Christopher Hulbert. Matt has been on the show before. It's good to have him back. Matt, are you there? I am there. I appreciate you having me. Well, welcome back. Good, good to talk with you again. Um, the it was seven years actually the last time you were on the show that that shocked me. I'm easily Has it really shocked, been that long. <laughs> twenty what that twenty seventeen that, that uh, pre COVID wow. everything in pre COVID is a blur. So uh, it was way back then, but uh, but here we are. Well, let me start with the uh, uh, the opening question for the benefit of listeners who haven't read this, uh, can you give us the, the elevator pitch, the, the two-minute version? Who was John Newman Edwards?
3: Uh,
1: we'll talk sure. about him all night,
3: so, but just the, the, the bare bones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so John Newman Edwards is a guy that your readers probably have never heard of, but they are sure. probably very familiar with many of his commemorative creations. So he is very much the man behind the curtain. Of several prominent Civil War narratives. He's the reason Joe Shelby's Joe Shelby. He's the reason William Clark Quantrill is William Clark Quantrill. He's the reason the James Brothers are the James Brothers. Um, And he's really the reason that generations of Americans, to the extent that they did pay attention to the war west of the Mississippi River, understood it the way that they did. Um, I joke, he's got sort of a Forrest Gump Quality to him. He's in the background of so many different A list stories from generals to bandits to emperors. Uh, So when you string his entire story together, you kind of get this grand tapestry of Civil War America that you don't get with any single A list figure. And that's really kind of the magic of his story.
1: You say in. The book that you originally contemplated writing, his biography, as your doctoral dissertation, uh, why did you not do it then?
3: Oh, and thank goodness that I didn't, that John Ensco <laughs> saved me from myself. Um, you know, at the time, thinking, I know so much about this, and I know so much about researching and writing, of course, never having published a book, um, this will be fun, this will be easy, and then, you know bless my editor at Bison as I turn this manuscript in years late uh, because I kind of learned the lesson the hard way that biography is just hard and it is layer upon layer of minute research and a lot of it ends up on the cutting room floor but you had to do it anyway um, so from that standpoint I just had no idea how much I didn't know and what I would have been getting into at that point point. and I'd also like to think having written books prior to this one um, that in terms of writing, I was ready to tell this story in a way that I probably couldn't have told, or at least not nearly as well as a graduate student. Edwards is, he left a copious amount of primary material. He had letters, he had the books that he wrote, he had his columns, um, but it's an interesting thing to sort of backtrack through primary material and archival material for the war in the West, because it's been paid so little attention to. Oftentimes, you know, I'd go on these tangents, just hours or even days of trying to figure out where a single fact had originally come from, only to trace it back five sources and figure out it wasn't real. Um, but Jeez. one person had said it, and it had been cited for you know a hundred years, so we just kind of went with it. So it was really sort of this exercise in not only telling his story but kind of figuring out. You know, what did historian? What had we actually vetted about the story about the war in the West? And unfortunately, compared to the war in the East, it, it wasn't nearly as much. And I don't know that I could have done that um, as a graduate student. Well, or I don't know if I had any business trying to do that as a grad student. <laughs> that was a much longer answer to that than you
1: wanted. It, it was a great answer, and it really uh, points out that that authors are are not. The, these monoliths. It's not like, with well, the exception maybe of Earl Hess, uh, who can <laughs> produce a book every month. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot, and we change from book to book, and new things come up. Well, we're going to talk about uh, John Newman Edwards and, and exactly what it was he did and, and wrote. Uh, When we come back, we'll take a short break, Uh, talking tonight with Matt Hulbert. He's the author of Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards, and His Never-Ending Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to ProkopovichG at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Matthew Christopher Hulbert, author of Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards, and his never-ending Civil War. So, Matt, you you pointed out that, uh, you know, listeners, until they read the book, don't know much about uh, John Newman Edwards or, or anything about him, and I certainly didn't. Uh, but it, I want to ask you a question about the people who might read this book. in In the first chapter, you have a couple set piece descriptions, uh, uh, very evocative descriptions of, of Margaret Garner uh, killing her daughter to keep her from going back into slavery. Uh, the story people know from, from Beloved. Uh, you have a description of the sack of Lawrence, Kansas, the sack of the caning of Charles Sumner. Pretty much everyone listening to the show knows those stories already. Um, uh, so I'm, I want to ask the same question I asked uh, Elizabeth Varon a couple weeks ago with her Longstreet biography. Who, do you, who did you have in mind as the reader for this book?
3: So this book was really intended for non-academics in the sense that I, I felt, for as long as I've known this story, that Edwards really lived sort of a made-for-TV life. I mean, you almost <laughs> couldn't make up the random mm-hmm. things that he pops up in, from the war to Mexico to the James Brothers to the duels, the alcoholism. Um, this has sort of all the, the hallmarks of a Hollywood script. But because at the time I started the project, the war in the West wasn't nearly as in vogue as it is now. Um, And in some corners, it's still not in Civil War history. Um, So I felt like as good as the story was, and as much as it needed to be told for non-academics, it still had to be researched and vetted to academic standards. So in that sense, it's really sort of a hybrid. Um, For historians of the war in the West or of the guerrilla war or of the various facets that pop up, it's for them. Um, But for as many non-historians or non-academic readers as I can reach, I think, you know, they'll think, huh, who the hell is John Newman Edwards? But if I can get my hooks in them just a little bit, um, I think that story will pull them in. And the reason that it starts with lots of people other than him, Margaret Garner, uh, Sumner, the sack of Lawrence, is because we tend to, when we, when we learn about the Civil War in school, if we talk about the sectional crisis at all, it's sort of big picture stuff. And then all of a sudden we're lobbing shells at Fort Sumter and then armies just magically appear. Um, these sort of automatrons fight the war. And then afterward, they're old men with beards and they shake hands at Gettysburg, right? Um, What I was really trying to get at with that prologue was this is the world that he came of age in. He is a product of this version of America as much as he wants to change it and evolve it and in some cases warp it. But it's impossible to disassociate him, his character, his mind, his worldview from the environment that was sort of his cradle. And in his case, it's an exceptionally violent environment I mean, you have a woman as you mentioned who thinks that her child is better off dead than living the kind of life she had. Uh, this is a world where Americans are sacking other American towns um, where a United States Senator is almost beat to death in the halls of the Capitol. This is not normal. Uh, so part of his exceptional story is because he is, he's coming of age in this exceptional time.
1: Now, when you, you pointed, it, so it's a hybrid book and a hybrid audience you're, you're aiming at, um, and the half that is the uh, uh, the, the the public half, it, it, as you point out, it's a really dramatic story. There's a lot there. Uh, I'm curious about the academic side. Uh, let, let me ask a. a business question. Was this a... You're an associate professor, so you're tenured. Um, mm-hmm. Is this a, a book, a promotion book for full professor? Or will... How will your colleagues see this?
3: No, this... Um, technically, this came out just after. Like, I just got promoted um, to associate, okay. so they're stuck with me now for a while. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. It came out right after. Um... So, uh, uh, to be honest with you, um, I didn't really look at it that way. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a it it did go through peer review, so you know technically it can count for future reviews and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one way or the other, uh, I just felt like this was a story that needed to be told, and it's not um, that by saying it's for a, you know a trade audience or a public audience that it's sort of a throwaway. On the academic side, I think too often, and Civil War historians, we're kind of guilty of this, maybe even more so than, you know, other subfields, we kind of assume it has to be one or the other. There's no way we could, you know, tell a really good story that also has an argument that sort of helps shape the field or reshape the field. But I think Edwards' story is so broad that he really does have the ability to do that. Uh, He's telling us new things about the war in the West, but not just our West, the West, broadly speaking. Edwards is a very interesting character in that he seems to understand in real time that the Civil War is part of a broader conflict uh, of conservatism, trying to hold the line, the old world trying to hold the line against all these isms, uh, all these uprisings, all this egalitarianism. Uh, So when we plug the war into that broader context, things start to change that academics are going to have to pay attention to as well. So, you know, in some sense I'm hoping, you know, the book sells tons of copies mm-hmm. and that, you know, all your friends who aren't historians want one, but at the end of the day uh, Edwards is somebody that my professional colleagues are going to have to reckon with as well.
1: Well, I th- there's no question. There's there's a, a, a strong and, and original argument here about the the hierarchical world, the, the fantasy world that uh, that that Edwards wants to recreate or, or create for the first time, because it never really existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's no question that, that this does have a thesis, does have an, an argument. And uh, I would, just off the track... Disagree a little bit that that we we in the civil war field are more guilty of this. I, I think other fields don't have the opportunity. We we have that choice between should this book be aimed at a popular audience or a academic one. But if you're writing about the um, late stage of the industrial revolution, it's hard to get a bestseller out of that. <laughs> Um, true. That's, yeah, that's know, true. We, we've got the advantage there. Well, let's talk about Edwards himself. Um, if he wants to recreate this, this glorious imagined world of knights and fair damsels and uh, everybody knows their place and some people are better than others, uh, not coincidentally, those who look like him are better than those who are darker than he is uh, in his worldview. Then the Civil War ought to provide a perfect opportunity to uh, actually be a knight on horseback. Uh,
3: So, does he participate in the war actively? He does. Um, So, you know, I have this—you have an odd relationship with biographical subjects to begin with, Mm. but then you know, when your subject is somebody who fights for the Confederacy and who supports slavery, and then has you know, racial views about Indians and other and Mexicans. You know, he's got a lot not going for him. Uh, the one thing that you've got to begrudgingly give him credit for is that he's not sort of armchair quarterbacking this. Um, he's not kind of giving pointers to the people who are actually doing the fighting. He, The second he gets the chance, uh, he tags along with Joe Shelby. He enlists in a cavalry unit. That is the nucleus of what later becomes Shelby's Iron Brigade. Um, He's wounded multiple times in combat. He's actually uh, a POW temporarily. He is taken to Johnson's Island and held there. Uh, At one point, he actually refuses to be paroled um, because he intends to take the promise not to take up arms again seriously. So he decides he's either going to stay a prisoner or he'll wait to be exchanged, and he's actually in one of those last few waves that does get exchanged, so he's able to resume fighting. Uh, And then he is with Shelby and his men basically through the end of the war, Uh, and he's there with Shelby when they are basically begging Kirby Smith not to uh, surrender his command out west. They'd like to try to prolong, prolong the war there, and Kirby Smith obviously has other ideas. So... Mm-hmm. he's in it for the duration, uh, and he's genuinely in it to win it, too.
1: Well, you have some interesting descriptions of the battles uh, in Missouri and Arkansas that he participates in. Uh, I want to pick up on the comment you made about relationship with the biographical subjects, and I would written that down as a question, because uh, I can remember in graduate school and seminar debating that with other students and with faculty, how should you... Be sympathetic to a biographical subject, or is that is that a necessary, or is it appropriate? Um, and as you said, this guy, every time he puts pen to paper, he just reveals even more insufferable elitism, bigotry, racism, um, and you're very clear in your writing th- th- how how he is. So, uh, the short version of the question: How could you stand him? <laughs> I mean, being with him as a subject um, for so
3: many years. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where as bad as a lot of it is, his story is just so interesting that it's kind of worth the suffering of, you know, researching it and then Mm -hmm. retelling it. Um, You know, I try to not approach it from the standpoint of am I going to be sympathetic or am I really okay. going to you know I'm going to really drop the hammer on him in this chapter. I felt like if I just told his story clearly, uh, now obviously n- nothing is 100% objective. There there's condemnation when there needs to be condemnation, but I felt okay. like in from a moral standpoint his story kind of explains itself. If you've got a pulse and you understand that slavery's not good and that racism's not good, Um, and that, you know, forcing broad swaths of the global population to be in the lower classes. So you can kind of gallivant around like Lancelot. If you understand that's not good. Um, he was actually kind of doing a lot of the, the revealing of his own story for me. I tried to focus more, you know, on the entertaining parts, the battles, Mm -hmm. the duels, all the other kind of crazy stuff that he's doing. Let
1: me ask a, a stylistic question. Uh, you refer to him throughout the book. I didn't pick it up right away, but halfway through, I thought, you keep calling him John. You're on a first-name basis with him. Um, why John and not Edwards?
3: Yeah, so part of that had to do with following him as he sort of evolved. So early on in the book, he's John Jr. Uh, right. And then when his father passes away, he becomes John Later, when he's sort of renowned as this political pundit and this memory propagandist, he's Major Edwards. Um, So it was really kind of a conscious choice that I wanted the reader to sort of follow his status and his place in American and really in Western American society along with me. Um, I felt like that worked a little bit better. I mean, I know this could go both ways. There are biographies that I'm sure are more skilled than I am that would have just called him Edwards. But at some point, you know, when you read Edwards for the 8,000th time, (laughs) um, that kind of become, you know, that has its own set of problems. So I had hoped sort of the evolution of his identity would come through with the name. That is something I'll, I'll, you know, give you a peek behind the curtain. My editor and I had sort of a long discussion about that Hmm. and whether or not it could work. And ultimately, um, she was willing to give me sort of the wiggle room to go for it um, but it, you're not the first person who's asked about that
1: It, it I think it does work I, I wasn't it, it, it took a while to, to notice it then I thought okay you know, it's it, this guy is not like uh, we're not talking about let's say Abraham Lincoln here if you want to be on a first name basis with him uh, that that's fine yeah. with me uh, the it, 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 after the after the surrender, you mentioned you know that, that he ends up out west, trans Mississippi. Uh, Kirby Smith uh, is out there. He doesn't want to surrender. John Edwards doesn't want to surrender, but does. And they end up in. He and and many of his fellow soldiers end up in Mexico. Um, in say thirty seconds before the next break, could you describe the politics of the United States and Mexico in eighteen sixty five? Begin. Uh, that was well, sarcastic.
3: It, it, they're got well, more time. To say, that. They're basically waiting uh, for the politics to really begin, because now that the war's over, the federal government can turn its attention to the shenanigans that France has been pulling in Mexico. Uh, and this is part of why the arrival of Shelby and Edwards, and these men who come to be known as confederados becomes so problematic for Emperor Maximilian, because all of a sudden now, the federal government doesn't have that other hand behind its back dealing with the Confederacy, and Maximilian's regime can have their full attention uh, and they fully intend to deal with him that that is
1: remarkably concise um, I, and believe me, I was just teasing the idea of, of unraveling this this political tangle in a few seconds is difficult, but you do show how uh, Edwards and his his fellow ex- confederates now end up in Mexico and then there's a civil war going on there the the waristas and the uh, mm-hmm. the forces of the empire are fighting uh, he He ends up uh, uh, basically on well it was funny to find in, in your description that his troops are are trying to decide which side they're going to join uh, as if it's a choice. Uh, as if they're, they're. Do you want chocolate or vanilla? Um, which side should we fight on in this war? And Joe Shelby says, "Oh, we should fight for the Republic." And the men say, "No, we'll fight for the Empire." And he says, "Okay," and, and off they go. Uh, that was a striking passage.
3: Yeah, it's an, You know, and it's interesting um, that in one on one hand. Edwards is sort of admitting that there's this disconnect. You can almost see Shelby rolling his eyes when his men say, the Republic, what do you mean? We're going to fight for the emperor. And he's thinking, guys, we just lost one war. Do we really want to you know, jump into the sort of losing side of another, which, of course, they end up doing and in some ways sort of lose the Civil War, lose the Confederacy all over again. Um, mm-hmm. But they go – to Mexico City, they meet with Maximilian, and they offer their services uh, essentially as sort of a second foreign legion, in a sense, kind of a mercenary force, and mm-hmm. Maximilian realizes what a horrible idea it would be for him to accept their services, not because they wouldn't be useful, they, they instantly would have become some of the most experienced veterans under his command, but the United States government is just looking for an excuse to cross the southern border and send Maximilian packing back to Europe if he takes in what are essentially Confederate outlaws these are men who did not surrender if he okay. takes them in and he brings them into his military this is Sheridan is just sitting there on the border asking Grant you know for the green light and this would be it so rather than bringing them into his military he subsidizes a bunch of land He allows them to start what is a neo-Confederate colony. They name it after the Empress, um, Carlotta. And they really think, or at least John really thinks, for a little while, this is going to work. This is everything we thought we were going to do north of the border. But Jeff Davis, he was just the president. He didn't have the authority or the oomph to make this happen Mm. for us. Now we've got a Habsburg emperor. This guy can do whatever he wants. This is really going to work. Um, But you get a lot of external pressure from the United States government. The Foreign Legion has to go home. Maximilian doesn't have enough native troops that are loyal to fight off the waristas. And eventually he ends up on the bad end of a firing squad, which, of course, sends John and all these other Confederados scurrying back home, being some of the only men um, who can claim that the Confederate experiment failed for them twice.
1: So hence the, the plural in oracle of lost causes. Um, exactly. Well, uh, yeah,
3: those are two of many. Uh, two
1: two of several, yes. Uh, oh, we will take another short break. We'll come back. Let me tease the audience by saying the first question will be, uh, tell us about John uh, Newman Edwards' Emotions for the uh, Empress Charlotte uh, of Mexico. Uh, that's what we'll talk about when we return with our guest Matt Albert. His book is called Oracle of Lost Causes John Newman Edwards and His Never Ending Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. self-improvement career advice and a variety of other topics check us out today you're sure to find something of interest voice america variety talk on today's hot topics
2: voice america is on linkedin connect with us today
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome
1: back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with the author of Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards and His Never-Ending Civil War. That author is Matthew Christopher Halbert, uh, Matt, last question from the previous segment, uh, when, when John Edwards is in Mexico, the, he seems to have quite the crush on the, the Empress.
3: He does. Uh, he seems to fall head over heels for Empress Charlotte, uh, and that is sort of an infatuation that he'll have really for the rest of his life um, within Edwards' worldview. He really does sort of imagine himself living in this world of knights and damsels and you know courtly love and chivalry um, so the interesting thing about the the crush or the feelings that he has with Charlotte, aside from the fact that he never tries to act on them, that probably wouldn't have been the greatest idea uh, you know you're You're a guest in Mexico of the emperor and then you're you know trying to put the moves on the empress um but it's it's fairly clear that he wasn't necessarily looking at her as an object of desire. He was almost looking at her as sort of this perfect icon of what an old-world woman was supposed to be. She played music. She enjoyed art. Um, she, she spoke several languages. She really was sort of how you would imagine sort of Guinevere being in a, a movie rendition, right, mm-hmm. of King Arthur. So... He almost views her the way uh, a poet would view a subject. It's not hard to imagine him writing medieval verse for her. And when he's back in the States um, years later, he actually receives a false report that she's died. And he writes this just, you know, the purplest prose imaginable, this obituary for her called Poor Carlotta. And then it turns out it's like, you know, her Abe Bogota moment. She's not actually dead. Um, and she ends up, uh, outliving him by, uh, you know, decades by several years, huh. but it really just sort of went to show how serious he took those tenets of his worldview and that relationship that, you know, he hadn't seen her for years, but he still, when he thought she died, all of those feelings sort of came rushing back. But by that point, he had really transitioned, uh, over to working with, James' brother, so he was in a very different headspace at that point. That's what I uh, wanted
1: to ask about. Uh, how does that transition happen? He's back in 1867, back in Missouri. Uh, he's writing again for newspapers, his own newspaper, then someone else's. How does he go from the elegance of, of the Empress of Mexico to the rough-and-ready James gang uh, and, and describing them in, in one piece as the chivalry of crime?
3: yeah I think the one word answer to that question is losing. Uh, he loses the Civil War he loses in Mexico. he comes back and he's initially using his position at the Kansas City Times to really try to you know get Democrats back in the game politically in Missouri and it's just not working um what's going on with reconstruction um, he's not seeing the political victories the political progress that he'd like and he, in a way, almost stumbles onto using the Jameses. Here are these two boys. Um, you know, if you just saw their picture, do you picture, you'd think these are sort of wholesome Missouri farm boys who love their mom and go to church and, you know, work out in the fields. You know, but then when you dig down deeper into their story, these were some of the most diehard Crow Confederates that the entire war has to offer. These guys, in a lot of ways, did the dirty work that regular soldiers weren't willing or able to do. So when they allege that they can't come home because of the things they did during the war, because unionists won't allow them to, he sees the perfect opportunity. Uh, and he turns them into social bandits. He turns them into Robin Hoods. He claims that they are chivalrous. Uh, they're like the bandits of old because they do it in broad daylight. They're daring robbers. They're not assassins who sneak around in the dark. And stab men in the back. Um, so he creates this entire mythology. Uh, he makes firsthand contact with them. He's ghostwriting and publishing their letters. It's, it's sort of amazing when you really stop and think that this wasn't that long ago, but he's the political editor of a major newspaper who's meeting daily with the most wanted criminals in the United States and publishing their firsthand stories in his paper, uh, and people just think it's great. He becomes nationally famous. Uh, they are some of his most valuable political mechanisms for pushing back against Reconstruction. But unfortunately for them, the Jameses, uh, Edwards is a very shrewd political operator, and when they're no longer useful post Northfield, once Reconstruction's over, he drops them. Um, you know, almost at the drop of a hat. He's just done with them, and he moves on to the next thing.
1: Before we get to that next thing, uh, it, I was fascinated by this description of, of the, uh, the James gang and, and their politicization at at Edwards' hands, uh, but it reminded me of, of the book by Mark Geiger, A Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri's Civil War, which I mention every time I can. I just think it's ingenious, and and his thesis is that it was the financial losses suffered by the Missouri upper class that led their next generation, like the Jameses, uh, to lead the lives they did. Uh, and fits exactly with what you say in your book—the um, uh, the way that uh, Edwards is able to characterize these guys. They're not—they're not born to crime. They're—they're they're driven to it by the outcome of the war, and uh, uh, it, it just dovetails with Geiger's argument beautifully. Now. You, the next thing uh that i, I look, well, the next thing of course is is the lost cause in Missouri, but there's an interlude. he gets married um yes <laughs> it, 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 it's, not, it's not the most savory
3: union no nothing nothing's easy um <laughs> with Edwards. nothing can just go smoothly, so he actually marries the daughter of a prominent judge um when Shelby is sort of bucking to get his colonel's commission, this is the guy's house that they sort of stop and have their launch party at. Three of this guy's sons serve uh, with John in the cavalry. It's unclear when he first starts to develop feelings for her. She She's a child, essentially the first time he sees her. Um, although, you know, in his initial social orbit, this would not have been totally out of character. Shelby becomes essentially engaged to his wife when she's still just a child. Um, he tells her he'll wait for her. Um, yes. but so his wife, Ginny, they get married in 1871. And as it turns out, if you go back a couple generations in their family tree, um, they have an interesting scenario where an aunt for one is also a grandmother for the other. Uh, and they turn out to be first cousins. Now yes. it's not unheard of for first cousins in the 1870s to get married. But her parents were not on board with the relationship, and she essentially runs off with him, and they get married anyway. Um, You know, if he had been wildly successful and able to support his family financially, he probably could have gotten away with this a little bit better. Uh, But they're not married all that long, and his professional career takes a major dip, and they actually have to go back and live with her parents because he doesn't have any living uh, parents that can help support them. So not only does he run off with her and marry his cousin, then he's got to go back and live under her father's roof after defying his wishes. The thing that probably helps him get away with this is that they start having children very quickly. Um, and her parents are just sort of over the moon to be grandparents. Uh, and I'm imagining he's kind of, you know, they figured out how to avoid each other in the hallway, you know, just <laughs> all around the house. Yeah. But, yes, just had to have been unbelievably awkward.
1: Now, we've run out of time almost, and I don't want to leave the, the, the biggest thing in a way that he does is promote the uh, – after the Jameses are out of the picture, he goes back and digs up even more on, on – unsavory characters uh quantrell you mentioned uh, uh you know bill anderson the uh just the worst of the the, the missouri bushwhackers during the war the guerrillas who killed people in cold blood and he turns them into missouri's lost cause heroes the way lee and jackson are for virginia how how does someone possibly manage that
3: well this is probably the most ingenious thing that he does he's looking around and he's a he's a mainstream democratic booster a pundit he's you know imagine sort of kind of the Tucker Carlson of Missouri of the 1870s and 1880s and he's looking around and he's realizing Missouri has a serious cultural and political problem in the sense that it doesn't have a confederate past because it never managed to secede from the union he's concerned that because it doesn't have that cultural linkage It's going to get cut off from other Southern Democrats that politically it will start to sort of drift more in the direction of Kansas and Illinois and Indiana, that it will become more Midwestern rather Mm. than Southern. So he looks around to see what he's got to work with. And by far the best known of Missouri's Civil War exports are the Bushwhackers and Quantrell is the chieftain of chieftains. So Mm -hmm. he takes them. And he makes this novel argument that I know you think these were a bunch of long-haired, rowdy guys who took scalps and murdered people, but what you're forgetting is they were willing to do anything. They were willing to cross that line on behalf of the Confederacy in a way that regular soldiers were not. They were the most diehard of all Confederates. So even though the state didn't leave the Union, these guys make up for that. And he creates this entire pantheon. That revolves around them. He spins the Lawrence Massacre, he spins the Centralia Massacre, spins their tactics, equates them to Francis Marion, to the Noble Savage, um, comes up with this just full-blown argument, and, you know, maybe the craziest thing is, it works. Uh, by and large, <laughs> it works. People think of Missouri the way they think of Kentucky. They imagine that it was a Confederate state. Um, and, you know, the great irony is Edwards himself was not a guerrilla. He's a regular cavalry officer. He loves Joe Shelby, who probably is Missouri's, you know, the closest thing it's got to a marble man. Uh, But he realized that from a political standpoint, Shelby wasn't going to cut it. Um, Guns and long hair and big knives and lots of blood sell books. Uh, Edwards knew it, and he took advantage of it, and it worked.
1: Well, I, I hope the same works for you. We're just about out of time. <laughs> Thank
3: you. But uh, uh,
1: listeners, uh, if you want to read about uh, Edwards's duel and other things that we didn't get to talk about tonight, get yourself a copy of Oracle of Lost Causes John Newman Edwards and his Never Ending Civil War by our guest, Matthew Christopher Hulbert. Matt, thanks for coming back to Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Thanks very much for having me. I hope it won't take me seven years to write something to come back again.
1: I hope not. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk
0: Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.